Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Last week had some big news on the political front. President Biden and Vice President Harris announced their re-election campaign in a video that attracted millions of views. And they also announced two crucial hires. Julie Chavez Rodriguez will be campaign manager and Quentin Foltz will be the campaign's principal deputy campaign manager. I am really pleased to be able to present this episode with Quentin. He was kind enough to accept this invitation as he was completing a fellowship at the Kennedy School's Institute of Politics at Harvard. He was even more kind to keep the appointment after he was named to his new position. And we recorded this episode while he was running from an airport to a meeting. And that comes across a little bit in the sound quality, but I hope you bear with me. I do think as you listen, you will appreciate why Quentin has risen to become one of the Democratic Party's top political strategists in a fairly short period of time. Last year, he was campaign manager for Reverend Raphael Warnock's successful re-election to the U.S. Senate, a race on which the majority of the Senate turned. In 2018, he served as deputy campaign manager for J.B. Pritzker's gubernatorial bid, which flipped the state from red to blue. And before that, Quinton's path took him through some of the most successful and impactful organizations in democratic politics. He has worked for Priorities USA, Emily's List, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He also led an Illinois-based advocacy group called Think Big Illinois, which worked to advance Governor Pritzker's policies in support of working families. To give you a sense of just how high the regard is for Quentin among political professionals, after his victory in Georgia, one media outlet described the competition for his employment as the Quentin Folks sweepstakes. Well, President Biden won that sweepstakes, as we now know. I should note that, among other things, Quentin also serves on the board of directors of the Institute for Ethical Campaigning, which promotes ethical campaign and diversity among campaign consultants and staff through internship programs for underserved communities, economically disadvantaged youth, people of color, and people with disabilities. Quentin and I recorded this episode on Friday, April 28th. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Quentin Folks, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Super excited to be here. I am elated to have you here, Quentin. And let me start by offering my congratulations to you for being named Principal Deputy Campaign Manager of the Biden re-election campaign. After the Warnock campaign ended, which you managed successfully, I saw a newspaper um, describe the competition for your services as the Quentin Folks sweepstakes. So we now know that President Biden won the sweepstakes, brought you on uh, to help lead his campaign. My question for you is, how do you think about um, your you know, making decisions that put you in a position to have the opportunities to lead campaigns like this one? Because this is the big time, you know, the presidential campaigns, that is major leads. Yeah, I, I mean, one, it, it's very flattering to, to hear you say that, to hear people say that, to read things like that about yourself. I think anyone would say that. But I, I try to tune a lot of that stuff out. 
uh, really, and, and just think about sort of the values and, and why I started this. Um, I think, you know, after you reach a certain level in politics or as an operative, as a staffer, uh, so to speak, um, you can sort of lose sight of that. And so for me, it's all about the values that um, I got into it with and trying to keep those values as close to me um, as I manage bigger and bigger things or get the opportunities to be able to manage bigger and bigger things. Uh, so those values to me are about, you know, um, you know, education. That's really what I started that. I, I think I'm just a product of public education and I wouldn't be where I was without that. And so, you know, things like that are just always in the back of my mind. Uh, but I think about where we are in the country uh, and the values of the people that I get to work for, uh, to represent, to help put in place. Um, the other benefit, I think the only benefit, uh, really of, of managing bigger and bigger campaigns, um, is that you can be selective about who you manage them for or who you run them yeah. for. Uh, and so for me, uh, you know, being a part of the JD Pritzker campaign and really getting my feet wet in, in management, uh, made a lot. He's a standout guy and excellent governor, uh, clearly from the accomplishments and then pivoting over to Raviel Warnock. Uh, who is literally uh, the moral compass of the United States Senate. Um, and then now with uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, uh, who are honestly moving our country in the direction that it needs to. And, you know, for this, you know, even the slogan I was excited about as an operative, finish the job. So I'm elated to do it. Uh, and at this level now, I get to decide who uh, I do it for. Uh, and I do it for people that represent those values that, that I had when I first got into this career. Yeah. So, you know, grounding yourself in values is absolutely uh, essential for folks as they move through campaigning and politics and governance because they can be challenged um, and and you can be tempted to 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 grab for some things that um, pull you away from reasons maybe why you got into it. So can you talk to us about you know how this all started, wh- where you grew up? you know, and how you first met politics. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up, um, in a small town, uh, in Southwest Georgia called Ellaville, Georgia. Um, it is probably maybe 30 minutes away from Plains, Georgia, uh, which for maybe some of your listeners and the politically astute, uh, they'll know that president Jimmy Carter, um, is from Plains. Um, and his niece was my high school English teacher. Um, and so for me, you know, it was a really small town, right? It, it's, um, in, you know, cotton farms, the, the whole area where I grew up, cotton farms, dairy farms. Um, and then sort of towns where when I say this, it may resonate with some of your audience and it may not, but it's you know, what I call sort of like an old money town where it's like the people who have it, have it, and they've always had it. And that's how it's always been. Uh, and so for me, it was like, I looked around and it was like, really the most successful persons that come from this sort of area just happened to be a president. And I had no idea what campaigns were. I had no idea the bill, Senate committee, none of that stuff at that point. It was just, I'm that close to a um, United States president. But even below that, you know, I was a Boy Scout um, and my school counselor, um, Charlene McGowan, um, her husband, Bill McGowan, was the mayor uh, of a local town over. Uh, and I had to do a project for Boy Scouts once. Um, and it was basically just like write a letter um, to like an elected official or, or, you know, someone like that. And I wrote a letter, uh, which I didn't mail I gave it to my school counselor and she gave it to her husband, but I wrote a letter. <laughs> um, and, and he actually wrote me back. Uh, and then, you know, went a step further and like drove into, I mean, the town was like 15, 20 minutes apart, but drove into Eldo and sat down with me and, 
you know, just the way he talked about it, his passion for it. And I, when I think about it now, I, I don't, he ain't a Democrat, he ran as a Democrat. But when I was, you know, 15 years old, 13 years old, I wasn't thinking about, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me. Like the, the policy stages of the position, it was just, this person took time and I still had that, that letter I had with friend. Um, and so, you know, just little things like that too, because I know it's really easy for people to be like, oh, you were close to a United States president that was sort of, you know, 20 minutes away. Yeah, that is cool. But you know, it's the smaller touches too. It's the, it's the community feel. It's the, the engagement that I got from a lot of other people, um, uh, where I grew up. Uh, and so that's really sort of the foundation of why politics, um, in the first place. And I just always just naturally, you know, gravitated to it. Uh, I, I like sort of learning. Uh, I like listening. I like trying to problem solve. Uh, for me, you know, politics and being a political operative, so a strategist, uh, it is a, is the ultimate way to do that. Uh, but the stakes are very high, meaningful. They matter to a lot of people. So, um, that's sort of the foundation of why being an operative and why a strategist. And again, it was just politics when I was that young, it was not strategist campaign manager at that point i was sure i was running around telling people i wanted to be the president or senator or whatever i was saying but um you know as i got into it i realized that there were other ways to to make change yeah so when you went off to college was you know politics governance that was something that you had already figured out that you wanted to pursue yeah for the most part i mean i don't think i've ever really changed my major really i mean i I got into it and it was political science from day one i mean i can remember watching speeches on you know c-span and cnn and you know floor speeches stuff that was you know sort of got me picked on uh if i'm being honest uh as a as a young kid um but uh i always wanted to do it and i had no idea what political science was right and so like what i do now is very different than the political science that i learned and that's not to say to any political science students listening to this, that they should change their major and all. It's actually a good foundational base to have, but I might have done um, sociology as well. And, and so, you know, that um, political science, sociology tandem, and I was just like everyone else who thinks about politics. I was like, I want to go to law school. Uh, and so it was just like law school beat, law school beat. And I just realized that it just, it wasn't law that I wanted to practice. And somebody at some point, I don't even know who it is, was like, if you're not going to need the law degree, don't go to law school. Uh, if you just want to do politics, you don't, you don't, you don't have to. And again, even in my four years of undergrad, no idea what an operative was, right? Like I didn't really learn that until literally I moved to BC and started graduate school, uh, which is a story there, but like did not know anything about the political side of campaigns. It was just still these elected officials and these are the principles that we have built our governance on, right? Like uh, law and order. That's what I was learning in, in undergrad. So still at that point didn't have any sort of basis or idea about what, you know, would become, you know, my ultimate career. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you about some of those early places that you worked at because they are just, they are the some of the most important organs in the democratic body politic, but you, you mentioned a story. So tell us the story about how you, how you got to DC. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my aunt, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go to DC. I always have sort of, you know, um, lamented a little bit, um, at DC, uh, not for what it is, but for what it sort of represented for me, which was something that sort of wasn't attainable. Um, you know, Senator Warnock uh, has this saying that he always talks about where he said that he grew up uh, in the family that he grew up in. It was it was uh, short on money, but low on love and faith. 
right? Um, now, my parents weren't pastors. And in fact, my father wasn't around. Uh, and it was really just my mother and my grandmother who raised me. Um, but short on money and very long on love. Uh, but I remember uh, wanting to go to Washington, D.C. My high school and my middle school did a, um, it's like any high school, middle school, did a trip to Washington, D.C. every year with sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Um, and obviously, as I said, I was always into those politics, right? The White House, the Capitol. I, I desperately wanted one of those hoodies that said FBI, CIA on it, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, from, the, from the little food truck stands. And so I was never able to go because the, I don't even know what it was, you know, $800, $1,000, whatever it may be. Um, but I was just never able to go on that trip. Uh, and so from that moment, I was like, I'm going to make it to, like, I just put in my brain, I'm going to get to Washington, D.C. Uh, and just so had that my aunt lives in Waldorf, Maryland. Uh, and so when I graduated undergrad in 2012, uh, I moved to Waldorf, Maryland and stayed with my aunts. And at that point, I still had no idea what I was going to do. I was sort of in between like law school and graduate school, thinking about which path I wanted to go. And I was just like, well, you know what? I need an internship. I need to do something. Um, and as fate has it, the district that my aunt lives in is represented by uh, Congressman Stanley Hoyer, who was the um, whip at the time for Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I applied for an internship. I got an internship, but it was in his um, district office. Um, okay. And it just so happens that, you know, the way it works is that he was in Democratic leadership. So he actually had three offices. There's one that's in the Capitol, that's in the Dome building. And then for those who sort of, you know, know the working of government, there's, you know, uh, house office buildings. And he had an office in Longworth. And then he also has district offices. The holy grail for any intern is to get into the Capitol, right? Uh, and so it just so happens that one of the interns quit um, or they didn't show up for their summer intern. And so I moved from uh, the district office into the office um, in the Capitol. Um, and that's just fate. I know I, there's nothing in my career that was like somebody called or that's just fate that that happened. But what that did is it took me from answering calls from constituents in the district to uh, sitting right outside the door where any Hoyer's office was. Uh, and, and getting to see him every day. Um, and at that point, um, the, the staff assistant in his office had worked for the DCCC IE uh, and suggested that I look into that. Uh, and that was obviously the beginning of the bunk because that took me from policy and legislation to uh, campaign. Yep. Uh, and I think for any operative, though, I do believe strongly that you want to work on campaigns, uh, but I think that the national party organizations on the Democrat or Republican side, but I'll speak in first-hand experience on the Democratic side, and DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, I was on the IE. You get a crash course in campaigns like no other at these uh, committees. Yep. Uh, polling, TV, um, you know, and so I got to see all that and work with a bunch of consultants who I still work with to this day. Um, uh, uh, Jeff Pollack, Global uh, Strategy Group, among them, one of them. Um, yes. but you know, and at that point that was, that was sort of the bug um, and I knew I wanted to do it. I had gotten into American university at that point and actually took a year off, uh, or a semester off to work for 2014 cycle, which Democrats got destroyed in. So I also think it was looking back on it. No one likes to lose, but it also sort of level set for me what I was getting into because you don't always win in this business. So I'm getting completely yeah. destroyed in 14 was also my first forte, uh, into politics of <laughs> in terms of. Uh, I, I, I started with that, with that taste in my mouth, um, and actually kept going because it happened again in 2016 
uh, at Priority USA, um, where I was working, uh, we were trying to elect uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton. Uh, but yeah, that, that sort of bug, and it's all just by happenstance of just being able to get an internship, um, like that and having exposure because if that, whoever that intern one didn't show up, uh, I would have never gotten that capital internship and would have never met that staff assistant. His name is uh, Federico Rodriguez, um, who put me on to working at the DCCC, um, that then started this whole, this whole term. Incredible. Really important. Um, so you mentioned the DCCC. You also worked at Emily's List, Priorities USA. Um, those are organizations that produce political ninjas. I mean, some of the most talented operatives come through those those uh, organizations. What do you think it is about them culturally uh, that produces really great political operatives? Um, again, I think it's. I think it's that the exposure that you see just because they're national, right? Um, one, you get to cut your teeth and, and see how things are sliced and diced in several states, not just one. It is important to do that groundwork. As I said, I do think you have to work campaigns like on the ground in the state. Uh, but those national committees, like uh, Emily's List, um, they, uh, they do it all across the country, right? And they can have different goals, right? Electing pro-choice women. Um, um, but... Or, you know, just honestly maintaining the majority in the House, winning back the House, taking back the House, taking back the Senate, whatever the case may be, increasing the number of governorship, the DGA, don't want to leave them off. Uh, but, um, you know, so I think that that's a really big piece of it. But, you know, honestly, for me, Emily's List will always hold a special place in my heart. Um, and again, I know I've referenced his name twice, but Jeff Pollack, uh, a global strategy group, introduced me to a woman named Ann Caprera, who uh, I know has been on staff for before. Um, and you know, this is at a time where, you know, I think people have a misperception about, um, these jobs and what it is to be a staffer. Uh, it's very tough. Uh, DC, even, even in 2014, 2013, it was not a cheap place to live. Uh, I, I do feel like I paid my dues. I, I took, uh, uh, my aunt lived in Waldorf, uh, for almost two years. I drove every day to, uh, Branch Avenue station on the green line. I took the train up. I uh, took the train all the way to Tenley Town, made a stop at Gallery Place, got on the red line. I, I paid my dues, right? Switched to the orange and blue line, went to the Capitol. Uh, but D.C. is not a, a cheap place to live. Uh, if we're, you know, 20-something-year-old, uh, it wasn't. But it always lists as special to me because when I met Anne Capra, that's honestly when things changed for me because it's about exposure. Um, there are a ton of operatives out there. No operatives, operatives of color, women. Um, particularly the demographic that get left out, API and Latina, who um, they just don't get exposure. Brilliant minds uh, would be brilliant strategists. They just don't get a chance to have a seat at the table. Uh, and what Emily's List did was I was an assistant at Emily's List, um, and I actually almost walked away from it. The clip about why DC, how DC is expensive is important because I almost walked away from the opportunity to work uh, with Anne as her assistant uh, because the salary was too low. I had worked at the DCCC before, met Pollock. He introduced me to Anne, who was looking for an assistant. And that is what I wanted to, you know, I was just trying to make more money, right? It's just a natural progression. Of, sure. You start this job. Why would I make less money than the first job I had? But DC was sort of coming off a sequester. Salaries were low for everyone. I'm talking $20,000 range, $28,000, $27,000 range. Um, and, you know, I just, I couldn't do it. Uh, and Anne was like, Quentin, I promise you, I will teach you this business. 
And I said, you know what? I'll roll the dice. I had taken a semester off of school. Um, so I said, I will take the salary. I will do this job. But what I want to do is I want to continue to be able to go to school. Uh, so she made that deal with me, let me keep doing that. Um, and the exposure that I got after that was just off the charts. I think that people can work for hundred bosses in politics and not get exposed to the types of things. And I mean, you know, polling data, focus groups, things that junior staff or assistants just typically don't get to see. Yeah. Uh, but I was internalizing that stuff at a very sort of young junior age. Um, I also think, you know, and this is equipped to young operators out there who do get that, that, that opportunity, which I, I do hope more people listen to this and give that opportunity to people if they're in a position to, but on the younger end of the spectrum, uh, if you're the one that's been given that opportunity, know what you don't know. Um, I listened a lot and there's a difference. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't trying to write the television commercial or edit the scripts or the polling. I just listened, right? I was a sponge for this information. Um, and so for me, um, that is really probably, I think again, you can kind of tell there's a theme that intern not showing up at the capital office and me meeting that staff assistant in Boyer's office and then connect to an anchor prior priority. They're probably the two most meaningful things that, that steered my career to where it is today. Yeah. Um, boy, Anka Prayer is somebody who I just respect to the hilt. Uh, that's why I, you know, asked her to be on the show. Um, what is it that you loved about working with her, about her in particular? That her core, this is about people. Um, and that has been, I've said it in speeches before, um, I've written, it's probably been written, quoted out of my mouth somewhere. Politics is about people. Uh, and I think again, going back to something I said earlier, you can lose, you can lose sight of that easily. And the decisions that we make, um, they affect people, they affect people's lives and people, you know, unfortunately, but this has been since the beginning of our political system, live and die based on those decisions. Right. And so I, I think about that and, you know, as the races get bigger, the pressure mounts, uh, and more people can live or die based on if I win or lose, uh, or if I'm successful at whatever I've been tasked to try to achieve. And so at her core, uh, Anne has instilled that in me that this is about people, uh, people that work for you, people that you want to vote for your candidate, uh, and then just fiercely loyal. Um, this is politics. Voters see it, Democrat versus Republican. Operatives on staffers see it as staffer versus staffer sometimes, unfortunately. And so, uh, and is loyal um, uh, to the degree of putting a 27 year old and uh, giving a 27 year old uh, reign over a $180 million budget. So she's she fiercely loyal, uh, and I admire her for that. But her, just for core understanding this is about people, how you treat people, uh, and her loyalty of how, the, how she treats the people. Yeah. So uh, after Emily's list, she uh, took you with her uh, when she ran J.B. Pritzker's uh, campaign against Bruce Rauner, who was the incumbent Republican governor. Um, yep. You went out there and were a part of a really important campaign and a great campaign that turned that state from red to blue. Uh, J.B. Pritzker is now one of the Democrats in, in the, you know, on the national stage who really has a profile and, you know, people look to as, you know, some of the future, the next decade or two of democratic leadership. Um, JB Pritzker is on that list. How did you find 
you know, that I think anyway, that this was a campaign where you went from um, operating across a lot of races to one where you're on the candidate side. How was that different? Um, I mean, you have to develop a relationship with the candidate. Um, whereas before, some of the IE organizations, I mean, the, the, the executive directors or some of the political desk, they, they develop relationships with the candidates. But as a campaign manager and a deputy campaign manager, which I am as the campaign manager, um, you, you have to develop a relationship with the candidate and, and really build. It was also a matter of working with a challenger where as a lot of the people within, um, you know, that you're, you're trying to keep in office, right? So to speak. So you're trying to hold the house and there may be a couple of challenger races where you're trying to win them at these national party committees. But with J.D. Pritzker in specific, he didn't have a policy platform. He had things that he cared about, early childhood education. Um, he also had uh, some, you know, uh, notions out there about him um, that I think we were able to turn on their head what he would be like because he's wealthy, things along that nature. Uh, but you sort of just evaluate things on a much more intimate level, I would say. Uh, and sometimes I think at party committees, you're, you're trying to avoid riding or, uh, uh, a, um, a national trend or a wave, so to speak, whether that be a red one or a blue one, or whether you're trying to divide midterms, which again, when we get to the Warnock piece, that'll probably be more relevant, but you know, you, you're trying to avoid trends at, at those places. I can in a campaign, uh, managing them directly. Um, you're, you're developing a relationship with a candidate and if it's a challenger, uh, you're trying to come up with policy, you're trying to, you know, sell a narrative, uh, about your guy or, or gal or person, um, that you're trying to get elected. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that, that was a, a learning curve, uh, but honestly, and I've been in the game and she wrote a campaign before. And so again, even in the position of being deputy campaign manager for Jamie Pritzker, which is like the largest governor's race ever. I was still just absorbing at that point. Like it takes time to develop these skills and you have to be uh, okay with, with it taking time and learn from those who know how to do it. But um, I'd say that's the biggest difference in between on the ground cabinet, which is why I say it's very, very important um, that you that you go out on the, in the field into the state and manage or, or work on campaign. You can't, uh, you can, but I don't think it's as good as going out. Uh, you can't just stay in D.C., whole time. Yep. Yep. So, uh, after that campaign, you then, uh, take over an organization that was, uh, and helped set it up, uh, to help advocate for, uh, policies that the governor, uh, wanted to advance. And there was a ballot initiative that was required in order to change the state of Illinois, uh, tax regime from just a flat tax to a progressive tax. And you've mentioned the challenges that you experienced in, in previous uh, election cycles of loss. And anyone in politics has had good cycles and bad cycles and, and campaigns that win and campaigns that, that lose. This was a unique one in that you won 55% of the vote, but the threshold was to 60. And as a result, the ballot measure didn't pass. And there was an editorial that ran after that election. Can you tell us about that editorial, how it affected you, and how you and how generally you move on after something that was a loss? Oh, Jim, 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 with the questions. Okay, so you know, <laughs> one, there were two different organizations. Think big was the the, the organization 
um, that I, that I started to help uh, Governor Pritzker uh, try to push some of his agenda through, uh, increasing the minimum wage, um, legalizing and decriminalizing marijuana, uh, passing the largest infrastructure bill in, in Illinois history, th- those types of things. And the, and the last piece of that and one of the core things that we sort of ran on was trying to get a, um, a progressive or graduated income tax into the state, which had been fiscally mismanaged for, for years. I mean, the state went three years without a budget. Um, it was bad. Uh, the schools are reliant, school funding is reliant on property taxes. Uh, and this is story short, this plan would have cut taxes, um, for anyone making less than $250,000 a year, which is 97% of people. Um, you know, I, I think to sort of understand it here, um, I want to give an honest assessment, which I don't think I've done on the record at any point that there were things that, um, one, I think, um, COVID in the pandemic, um, uh, I couldn't run a traditional campaign. So a lot yeah. of the skills that I had soaked up, I could have knocked doors. Right. And, and it's, it's very hard because when you're managing a candidate campaign, um, you're selling an individual, you're selling a person and, and, and their policy. When you just have to talk about taxes, um, for a very long time, sustained period of time, uh, in a time of economic uncertainty that, that didn't help. Um, there's also significant funding. We had significant funding too. Um, so that, that those even each other out. Um, and you know, I, I think if I made, I made mistakes, uh, you know, again, I think it's really important for any operative worth their weight, um, to own, uh, when they make mistakes or when they lose, I, I made two mistakes. Um, I think, uh, one is that I didn't factor in the cumulative effect of, because the idea of the graduated income tax from the progressive income tax started out extremely popular in the state. Just the idea on paper, when you test it, people want it, people like it. Um, and I saw in some of the polling, um, that there were messages that would work against it. Now, mm-hmm. obviously this polling was before COVID, right? Um, but I saw that though there were messages that would work against it and I didn't calculate the cumulative effect of several negative messages, all compounding into one. Um, and I think the biggest mistake I made was probably waiting too late to begin advertising on it. Um, by the time we began advertising on it, um, our opponents found funding, uh, and they were able to sort of even the score and it just, their negative on it was more, more potent than our positive. So that was the first mistake I made. Um, the, the, no, well, that's the second mistake I made. The first mistake that I made was not understanding the rules. I just got done. I, I teach with Anne at American University, uh, at course at Campaign Management Institute. Uh, and then I also was just up at Harvard and doing a fellowship there. And what I teach, uh, the first course is sort of understanding the rules, knowing your electorate. I knew that it required a 60% threshold, um, to get it done, uh, but I wasn't equipped or prepared for sort of the rules. And I took that job and, and managed that. Um, I think I possessed the skills that could have won that. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I took that job because it was a job that was there in front of me. Um, and it was going to be a big campaign. I knew it was going to be one that um, if I had won it, could have been meaningful to a lot of people. Um, and I took that job. So that's the first mistake I made. And then the second one, as an operative, when I got into it, I waited too late to begin advertising. Um, and, and the opposition defined it. And then once it got past a certain level, again, 60% is high, but once it got past a certain level, um, uh, 
it was it was it was too much to get back, uh, and so we lost. And then the operative or the 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 sort of article that you're referring to um, sort of came out, and it was somebody critiquing me, but it was, it was almost a critique, uh, not not a bad. Um, it was it was brought back when I left, so uh, I stayed and worked for Governor Pritzker, and, and I kept doing. I was his senior advisor. Uh, political advisor, and I kept doing that work for him even after the fair tax uh, failed. Um, and then when Senator Warnock called and I decided to go to Georgia, someone wrote basically that Governor Pritzker was hiring me because um, uh, because I had lost that and I was on my way out the door. Uh, so I would probably say, you know, again, um, where that was written um, is not even, you know, um, worth my time for it to, 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 to have the effect that it had on me, but it did, right? Nobody likes to lose its stains. Um, especially at the level that, you know, you're playing at with these types of people that you're playing with. And so, um, you know, it, it stung me. Um, and I thought for a second there, I was like, this is sort of over for me, right? Like I was embarrassed. I thought I was like, this is done. Um, and you know, it, it sort of ultimately maybe what pushed me to take the risk, um, to, to go to Georgia. And because I had to do something um, uh, to, the, to to redefine the narrative about who Quentin was as an operative, right? Uh, oh my God! Well, let me do, can I just interrupt you because that is exactly what I go for with these stories. I, I like to ask people, you know, like what was their biggest mistake, or tell me a story of a time that, like, you know, it didn't go well. And what you just walked through with your candor is like. That says so much about who you are, about just saying what were the things I could have done differently, and then how you recapture that momentum. And actually, in your case, going to manage a campaign in Georgia with the the the, the, the Senate hanging in the balance. Um, I mean, really high stakes. Once it got really high profile, and you just put yourself in that position to test yourself and be evaluated again. And I want to ask you about that campaign. But before we get there, something that is a very real dynamic in our society, and certainly it applies to politics, it, 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 is that people of color and women pay a higher price for making the same mistakes that other people make. And my question for you is, how do you... How do you prepare for that? I mean, as, as a campaign manager, you're going to be faced with the exact same strategic challenges, budget allocation decisions, right? Every campaign manager is going to be faced with the same tough choices. But as a person of color, whatever, whatever you know, Monday morning quarterbacking there is to be done, the penalty on reputation, et cetera, is higher. So how do you create the space for yourself to both make the decision that you want to make based on the information in front of you, but also know in the back of your mind, there's a, you know, there's a looming potential critic out there that um, I'm going to, you know, have to deal with and maybe prepare for now. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it starts out as by having a, a true understanding of who you are. And I think it goes back to making sure that you have, you have that understanding uh, and then that that the people that you work for have that understanding. Uh, and with every job I've ever taken, uh, whether it be with Anne as an assistant, um, whether it be Emily's List, any of the places that I've ever worked with, um, whether it be for J.D. Pritchker, Raphael Warnock, even now President Biden, um, I have a definition of 
who Clinton is that trumps everything. And my candidates um, that I work for, um, regardless of who they are, have to know that, which is uh, I am a political strategist and a campaign manager that is black. I'm not a black political strategist, campaign manager. Um, I, de- I define that out of the gate with the people that I work for. To the press thing, you have to know that that's going to come with the territory. I can, I don't get to make as many mistakes, even using the same set of data that other people get to make. I get penalized for it. That is a fact. Um, and, you know, but again, I am the type of person that justifies sort of the underlying benefits of a lot of these things. And that sucks. It does suck. And there's no other way to put it. Um, but that pushes me to, to, to take risks. That pushes me to continue to do things. If I had won in Illinois, I know I'm not sure sitting here if I can say that I would have just jumped at the opportunity to go to Georgia um, and do that race. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's other factors in Georgia, too. One, I'm from there. My family's there. The state's a higher right. Like, who represent the people? I love Illinois. Uh, I have friends and frenemies uh, that feel like family <laughs> to me there. Uh, but they're not blood. Uh, close. Close. But in Georgia, I have blood. And childhood friends lifelong friends uh, and so the states of that meant a lot to me and so i think i ultimately would have done it uh but the sort of backlash that i got for what happened in illinois and my watch with the fair tax honestly sort of put me over but you know again i think it's really important that me defining who i am right like and i think that that's important to any operative of color um api latina woman anything where you're sort of down and out from the beginning right um I think it's important that you define that, that you make sure that the person or the people, the organization that you're working for, they know that. Now, I think it is a catch-22 because one of the problems that I think exists in our industry um, is is lack of access at the table. Uh, and so, as you've heard me say, this stuff takes time to develop. Even as deputy campaign manager for Jamie Pritzker and the largest government of race in all time, I was still soaking up information i was still learning right i had the title but i was still learning um and now we're faced with how do we get more people more operatives of color more women uh more minorities into prominent seats at the table in campaigns uh and i, I when i when i talk about like this our political system I'm, I'm speaking about campaigns that's what i know best um and so what's happening though is they're in the push to do that but people are getting jobs that they honestly haven't had the skill set to learn. Um, and you know, I think it's, I think it's great, but to this point that you're mentioning, you're going to win and lose in this industry. Right. And so when you lose, if you start from a place of where you, you get a title, um, you've worked, you go for it. And I always say this again to, to the, to the people that I'm addressing here, go for the biggest thing that you can get. The worst thing that somebody can do is tell you, no, uh, but the problem is, like you said, Jim, when, when you lose, there is more criticism there. And this is as big of a world as it is. It's also very small. It's a, it's a bubble. Um, Republicans have their bubble of operatives and consultants that, you know, recommend and don't recommend operatives or, or staffers. Democrats have theirs, right? And so once that reputation gets out there, it starts to um, take hold. And so, you know, I think that we have to do more um, to make sure that we're calling that out when we see it uh, because you're, what you're doing is you're cutting people's legs up from under them before they can even begin to walk. Right. Um, and, and that's not fair. And if we keep allowing that, that to sort of go into secular fashion, 
uh, we're never going to fix the problem of how we address silver diversity, particularly within campaign, um, um, you know, and so I, I think that that is, that's what I'll say about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you've, um, you are on the board of directors of an organization that is working to build um, political talent uh, across the spectrum. It's called the Institute for Ethical Campaigning, which promotes ethical campaigning and diversity among campaign consultants and staff. Um, when you're in, you know, when the organization is doing what it does best, what are the things that you are communicating to young people who would love, you know, look at your career and say, that's exactly what I, I want, even, you know. Every career is going to have its ups and downs and its bumps along the road, but the opportunities that Quentin has had, the accomplishment, the accomplishments that he has experienced and helped lead, I want those for myself. What do you say to those folks? I I, I think I would say to them, um, you know, each one of these things is different. Every single time you do a political race, uh, if you rerun Georgia over right now with, with the same two candidates, they would be completely different. Um, and so... You know, don't bank on ever getting the same experience that someone else got. Uh, I've been very fortunate for just the timing. Uh, I think it's very rare um, on the operative side of things for the timing to line up to where you get, you know, I could work on a presidential at a super PAC in 2016, and then I could run a or help run a governor's race in 2018. And then there's a ballot of initiative that comes along. And then, you know, then there's a, a Senate race. Um, and in fact, in this instance, for me, I, I did rap for Senator Warnock's re-elect, um, not the original one. And that was a special election. So if, if I hadn't done that, or if that wasn't a special election, again, to these things throughout my career that have just been anomalies, right? But if that hadn't been a special election, I'd wait six years for that race. I wouldn't have had an opportunity because he wouldn't have been up for another six years. And so even that within itself, the odds of that lining up, the odds of it being from your home state, like. There's a lot of things in my career where regardless of what people believe or their faiths or, you know, whatever guides them, uh, I do rely heavily on my faith and I think that, you know, whatever guides them, there has to be something working for me there because these things just keep lining up timing wise. And even with Warnock and the runoff getting done, okay, now at the presidential year, right? And so for th that just doesn't happen for a lot of people, right? Just timing alone, forget accomplishments, successive losses, just timing. Um, but I would say to those, those people, like, you know, forge your own path, find people who value you for who you are and what you bring to the table. Uh, find people who are going to give you exposure. Um, find people who are going to be your cheerleaders. And again, going back to me, I'm, I don't think there's anybody on the planet that's a bigger cheerleader, uh, for me, uh, than I am. Um, and you know, she's also my mentor. She also taught me how to do everything, right? I, I, I remember late night sitting in our office and. Being like, I heard this on a call, but I just don't understand why you guys decided to go with that, right? And, you know, we, we would print out 50 pages worth of cross tabs, sit there with an highlighter and sort of go through it line by line. Uh, I didn't know how to calculate television points. I mean, and these were things I was learning while I was an assistant. I was very far away from being able to ever implement them into any sort of strategy. And so, you know, find people who, who are willing to do that for you. Um, this is a busy world. People have a lot to do. Um, but... You know, if if somebody's too busy to to help you grow and to learn, they're probably, it's probably not the right place for you. Yeah. Um, let me re return to the Warnock campaign um, because, as you said, it had such personal importance to you and professional importance to you, and it was it was the race everyone was watching this past cycle for a lot of different reasons. Um, 
Tell us about, you know, in addition to learning from peers and, and direct reports, we also learn from candidates uh, for those who we, we work. So tell us what it was like to work for Reverend and Senator Warnock. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's a piece of it where, you know, he's from Georgia. I think we grew up in, you know, similar backgrounds in terms of, you know, sort of financial status and things along that. And so you, you have that in common out of the gate. Uh, you also have in common, you know, just being African-American. I mean, this is not to take away from any of the opportunities um, that any other organization or candidate in this business has given to me because uh, they are meaningful 10 times over. Um, but in that race, you know, Senator Warnock is an African-American man. Um, there have only been 11 African-American senators uh, in American history out of hundreds. Um, and, you know, again, the odds that I get to go help one who's already won it, right? I, I think I, I'm very cautious about this because a lot of people give me credit, which, look, I helped Senator Warnock win re-election. There were some operatives out there who did that work to get from there, and they really beat down the door in 2020. Uh, President Biden, Senator Ossoff, they did what they needed to do to, to win. But, you know, coming back here now and having to carry it alone on the ballot uh, for Senator Warnock, I was meaningful. And I think, too, you know, that that race um, was about defining, defining expectations, uh, defining things. I mean, and they're, they're just conversations that I'll never sort of um, take back. I mean, to get, you know, sort of personal here and I don't, I won't go into the, you know, the senator's stuff too much, but, you know, I said to you guys that my father wasn't around, um, and, you know, to, to, to see two African-American men running on a ballot and, and one who is deeply involved in his children's life, uh, and another who, um, you know, I don't think so. And even according to their own child, it's not involved in no life. So I'll leave it at that, but having these conversations about even just what fatherhood is defined like for black men. Um, that's not something that I, I can get from another candidate that, that, that isn't living that or isn't walking that or, or haven't dealt with that. Right. And so, you know, I'll, I'll always remember conversations like that. And, and then again, just Senator Warnock as a person, I, I, I try not to be offensive because there are other candidates who are grounded in morality. They're grounded in decency. President Biden, I mean, it's just, this is about just, we need to return to just decency, right? Uh, Jamie Pritzker, morals, decency, how you treat people, how we welcome people, how we help those less fortunate. So when I say that, you know, Senator Warnock is a moral person, I think the only difference there is that he's a pastor, right? Like, like somebody who deeply studied the scripture. Uh, and so what I would say more so, so that I don't offend anyone, is that Senator Warnock, for me, working with him and learning from him, is he, he, he could, he could, like everyone else just feels it, right? Uh, we just do it because it's a, we were raised right. You did not go to church every Sunday, but your parents can be like, hey, you don't just call people out of their name or you don't hit people. You, it's just the decent thing to do. But if you really like try to break it down and be like, you know, academic about it, it's hard pressed to just say why. Right. You would need that political yeah. science degree that I talked about. Right. Which is yeah. fine in our laws and our culture. Senator Warnock can do that with faith. Um, and he does it like he's breathing. It's who he is. Um, and so it, that's something that's, that's very special. Um, and so working with someone like that and seeing not only that they're grounded in that, but they can explain to you why they're grounded in that and what yeah. it means, whether it be through personal stories or through written scripture, 
um, is, is something that's really, really extremely unique about, about him. And so, you know, all those combinations, again, just, I'll relate to it in a way that, that, I, that, you know, no offense to anyone else. It's just, it's hard to relate to because he walked the same path of life. He feels the same eyes on him. He gets the same scrutiny that we talked about, whether it be from the operative side where we talked about it as a strategist of color, he gets that as a candidate of color, right? So that's right. You know, these are, these are things that sort of made us hit it off and, and, and we're able to establish a, a great working relationship, um, to make the calls that we needed to win that break. Well, you know, hearing you talk about it, it's just a reminder to me and I hope to everyone who listens that these jobs in politics, they are more than just jobs. It is personal. It is personal for us. We're in it for reasons that are, you know, driven from our core. And that's what makes them beautiful. That's in part why I do this podcast, because there is this ode to being a staffer that is important and more people ought to know about Um so, Quentin, I'm going to I'm going to uh, close where we began, and that is with your new role um, as the deputy campaign manager for the, the Biden reelect. Um, you're a, you're about to be in a position uh, and, and a campaign is about to grow to over the next 19 months, have thousands and thousands of people involved. Um, obviously, you are going to try to bring on people who have some of the values they've been talking about, want to do the work that you've been um, uh, describing. What is it that you know, you know, that President Biden and the, you know, and, and, and Vice President Harris want out of their campaign that you view it as, okay, it's not just important to do the tactics. It's also important to do them the right way. How are you marrying, you know, how are you thinking about that equation um, as you take on your new role? You know, I think that it's, it's easy to attract, um, the people and they did a question, how are you going to hire? How are you going to step up? How are you going to hire them people? It's easy to attract the right kind of people that have the values when everything, uh, about it is based in it. Um, uh, and you know, finish the job, um, this campaign from president Biden's mouth, vice president Harris's mouth is going to be grounded in those values, freedom decency, um, you know, giving people more rights, not left, not taking them away, like standing up for our democracy. Like that's why they run out. Like at this moment in time, this is what our country needs. I believe that deeply to my core. Uh, President Biden believes it deeply to his core, which is why he's running. Vice President Harris believes it deeply to her core. And, you know, we have to continue to deliver. Like, and if you, if you really break it down, the stuff that's been delivered um, by this administration is so massive that the challenge within itself is almost explaining it, um, how massive it is and how meaningful it is. And so we're going to bring in folks who have those values, who understand that we're fighting for freedom, that we're fighting for decency, that we're fighting for morality, that we're fighting to finish the job, uh, to get past, you know, this moment in our history, um, that's plaguing us. Um, and you know, for me, when I look at it, president Biden is the person to do that for us. And so I'm not worried about the type of people that we're going to be able to attract. Um, you know, I know that that's going to be easy because it's just going to pour through when it's organic, it's not forced. Um, and when you have that, that authenticity around who you are, what you're doing it for. And again, I'm not naive to the fact that, you know, it's a presidential election for the United States of America. 
Um, we're talking about several, you know, millions of people, uh, huh, um, the, you know, voting and believing in these things. But that's who America is, right? Um, and we know that. Uh, President Biden knows that. Uh, the administration knows that. Our campaign knows that. Um, the campaign manager on the campaign who is going to be leading it, uh, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, she knows that. Um, she's been there. Um, you know, we're going to do something that the world hasn't seen. We're going to continue to build on a large coalition. Uh, the most people ever voting, really, in the modern era, uh, sent President Biden and Vice President Harris to the White House in 2020. Uh, we're going to add on to that um, because that's where we are in the country. And, you know, America knows it. Uh, it's why President Biden is where he is. Uh, and so I'm just going to do everything in my power every single day. Um, but I, I also, and this is a piece of advice to just offer this, um, it's day over day. Survive. Um, if you're thinking about um, November of 2024, if I'm thinking about November of 2024, I didn't know and have in the back of my mind that the ultimate goal is to win the presidency. Um, but it's day over day. Uh, and some days it may feel like minute over minute or second over second. Uh, but just survive. Just get there. And it's worth it, right? What, what, what your opposition wants you to do, and this isn't even, you know, what your opposition wants you to do is still defeated. And at any moment, any second, any minute, any day that you feel defeated, they make ground on you. And if you do that enough over the course of a campaign, you lose. If they can make you lose ground more than you can make them lose ground or make them not gain ground over the course of an election, you lose. Uh, we know what we're fighting for. We know what the Biden-Harris administration stands for, and we're not going to give up any ground. Quentin, that is a <clears throat> beautiful and inspirational place to end. I can't thank you enough for spending this hour with us, for sharing your wisdom, and truly thank you. Thank you for what you do. I am I, I am so happy for the president and vice president for our party, but most importantly, the country that you are where you are. We need you where you are. And I wish you nothing but success in this endeavor, which I know you're going to have. Um, but thank you truly for what you do and for, for everything you shared with us today. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. <laughs>